0: the cnbc app global market news in one place customizable sections and personalized alerts stocks tracking interactive charts and market insights all in your hands stay connected stay informed download the cnbc app today
1: welcome to sportbox here are your headlines today the Dow rallies to its best day since march as markets storm back from last week's post-fed sell-off Fed Chair Jerome Powell warns that a continued economic threat from the pandemic, adding that current price pressures are transitory as he prepares to face Congress later today.
0: French media giant Vivendi faces a crucial investor test today as it seeks to spin off its prized Universal Music business, a plan that's drawn heavy criticism from activist funds. And the CFO of LVMH tells CNBC the world's largest luxury brand is overcoming the slow restart of tourism as iconic Parisian department store La Samaritain reopens after 17 years.
2: Europe has been affected by uh, the retrenchment of tourists inside their, uh, their home countries. But that's also we also view that as an opportunity to develop our business
3: with the locals.
2: Over in Germany, Armin Laschet promises a post-Merkel and post-pandemic era devoid of austerity and tax hikes as the CDU releases its election manifesto with less than 100 days to go before the Germans head to the polls.
1: A fresh trading week and a fresh attitude on Wall Street. Investors had uh, wrapped up the Friday trade nervous about... The Fed and the signaling around a taper and interest rate hikes. Coming back to the trade yesterday for the Monday session, you could see very strong outing as investors bought back sold stocks that they had sold aggressively in the Friday trade. 486 points to the upside, 1.76%. And that was a sizable move. Don't forget, uh, over the course of last week, the Dow had been reversed and we had about five straight sessions of losses for the Dow. So what we witnessed yesterday, the best trading day since the 5th of March. Uh, so uh, very strong pop there, but also across the 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 board 1.4 percent on the S&P 500. The Nasdaq a little bit left behind and this does tell you that rotation again as investors decide where they want to be parking their bets. Last week we saw the resilience of technology while other markets other parts of the market in fact reversed. Banking stocks are very much at the forefront of the reflation trade had been under pressure on that Friday sell-off. A very strong trade yesterday is what we witnessed in some of those banks. Particularly the regional names that saw about 4% odd percent in the trading session. Best day since the 6th of January. In terms of the sectors, uh, all sectors trading positive for the day, but energy leading the charge, uh, 4.3% higher. Consumer discretionary somewhat left behind. And let's take a look uh, elsewhere as uh, we are coming up to a big event later on today. Jay Powell, we have seen prepared testimony so far as he talks about the outlook for inflation, still saying he thinks it will be transitory, but does make a nod to the lift in prices that we've all witnessed as we see these uh, pandemic trends start to shift to an extent. What the yields are doing at this point, we've seen a lot of movement in recent sessions. We've now started to stabilise at this point, uh, still just trading uh, off the 1.5% mark on the, the 10-year and uh, about a quarter, 1% on the two-year. So we're holding at this level. The question is, whether we hear anything extra from Jay Powell as he's by lawmakers later on today. But uh, so far, he's still been talking about how uneven the recovery has been in this prepared testimony. Also uh, about the joblessness, hitting low-wage workers, blacks, Hispanics. So uh, we expect you to hear a little bit more about how he's waiting for that improvement uh, to fall right across the economy not just on markets and in some areas where you're seeing that pent-up demand story i want to take you to what we're seeing on bitcoin now uh, boy has that been another wild ride for investors we saw a fairly dramatic uh, commentary uh, a day earlier from the central bank in china effectively again Uh, talking about this crackdown on cryptocurrencies, restricting trading channels for Chinese residents, is uh, very similar to a ruling back in 2017, but then just tightening the noose on how this trading can occur in overseas markets. uh, And what you're seeing as a lot of investors were not able to conduct those transactions at home, but could still send money overseas electronically and then trade Bitcoin. But uh, some of that now changing with the latest crackdown. We did see the fall in Bitcoin a day earlier. The bounce back now after that 10% plunge, uh, you can see it is now trading to the upside. Well, the Asian markets too are seeing a rebound from uh, trading losses yesterday. So let's get out to Matthew Taylor for a look. Matt, how strong is the bounce back you're witnessing?
4: Hi, Karen. It's fairly patchy. Most of these markets bouncing back after that regional sell-down uh, that we did see yesterday, but some of those more tech-heavy related markets are under perhaps a little bit of pressure, given the relative underperformance we saw in the Nasdaq overnight compared to the likes of the Dow and the S and P 500. But a strong rebound when it comes to the likes of Australia, up by about 1.6%. Japan things are a little bit more muted though uh, for the Greater China markets. Just back from the lunch break, you can see uh, we've got Shenzhen higher, but Hong Kong really sitting on the flat line. Japan though. The standout performer, of course, it led us to the downside yesterday, leading us higher today, managing to recoup much of yesterday's losses. We've got the Nikkei up by around about 3% at this point in time, uh, 854 points higher. Dollar yen weakening as well, back to about the 110 level. Uh, a real divergence in the China market, though, as I was mentioning, when it comes to the mainland, we are seeing a stronger performance. Hong Kong under some pressure earlier, managing now to hover around the flatline. Tech stocks have been leading the Hong Kong market lower, as I mentioned, given that less convincing performance uh, from the Nasdaq. Hang Seng, uh, flat as attack, tack, 11 points to the downside right now just after the lunch break. Back to you now in London.
2: Mr. Taylor, I'll pick up there. Thank you very much. I'm actually in East Sussex, even better than London. Uh, Thank you for that. Right. Okay. let's move on and take a look at WTI and Brent. Uh, Light Sweet Crude, 7363. That's the July contract. Uh, Trading flat, but my goodness me, some of the highest levels we've seen in a very long time. Brent Crude, 7510. is amazing when we're talking about shortages of all kinds of commodities out there. This is the one commodity, of course, which has enforced shortages uh, only because the suppliers have taken so many millions, of barrels off the table. When and if OPEC put more back on the table remains to be seen. Uh, let's move on. Let's have a look at the dollar index. Anyway, I've been playing with charts. I'm doing my best to uh, be a chartist like Mr. Cutmore as well. But um, I've actually gone back to uh, well, to when we were all young men. You and I, Jeff, and even Carl Weinberg was young at 1986, and the dollar index was 116. It's currently trading 91.97, and I think that's where a lot of the action is uh on the dollar uh where we're all looking and the dollar index yes of course it had that blip up at the tail end of last week Karen as well now seems quite steady but it doesn't seem to take too much in terms of the dollar index uh having the daily rallies that it had at the tail end of last week to uh to scare the horses in the paddock, so to speak. And I just wonder, I know we're going to talk to Carl in a few moments time, Jeff and Karen, but it just seems to me that the market is fixated once again on one issue and one issue only. And that is what Jay Powell is doing and the reactions to uh, inflation, whether it's transitory or whether it's more permanent. I know Carl has got a view or two on that as well. But I'm just wondering, there's a lot of other things going on out there, whether it's COVID, whether it's geopolitics, whether it's individual corporates, whether it's the debt profile. I wonder if we're missing a trick and the next crisis building somewhere while the market's looking in the wrong direction.
1: No doubt, Steve, no doubt. But uh, I think what is fair to say, the market is somewhat skittish at this point to sell off so aggressively last week on the back of a, a little bit of talk that the market thinks was inevitable anyway. I mean, we've been hearing from every market participant that our concerned about inflation, that it. it uh, is very much in front of them right now, just different outcomes as to whether they think it's transitory or not. So at this point to hear the Fed talking about it and weighing in was a pretty obvious commentary. Yet I think that the market still was very aggressive in that sell off. But then to just buy back uh, very aggressively to the upside the next day tells you how nervous uh, investors are about this positioning where they want to be in those reflation trades, namely the banks and some of the commodities, energy plays, or whether they want to be positioned elsewhere around uh, safer areas of the market. And don't forget i think it's fascinating how technology has come back into the mix investors uh, have been following the growth profile and we've spoken to a lot in the sector and you can see just how strongly they have positioned for the acceleration, I mean, we're going to have a lot of conversations today with some of the payments companies They were outperforming broader sectors before going into the pandemic. They've had the pandemic trends because of this pivot towards online transactions and they still think uh, it's early days in terms of the journey that there's even more to come. So I think it's fascinating as we take a look at where investors want to chase that growth and superior returns from here, whether there's much left in the reflation trade or whether we start going back to companies that are genuinely positioned for growth.
2: Yeah. I, I, do you know what? Everything you just said, I, I totally agree with, apart from one word, uh, two, maybe three words, depending if it's hyphenated. And that was aggressive sell off. I, I, absolutely. All of the above, Karen. But I don't think it was an aggressive sell off. I, I kind of tried to say this yesterday as well. Compared to where we've come, it was a, it was a pinprick. Uh, I mean, the fact is, in in the world of big numbers, Uh, 500 points here, 500 points there. It's neither here nor there. We're talking about a percent and a bit on the Dow and that. So I I don't think we did see an aggressive. I thought we saw a mere abating uh, from the previous levels, a recharge being put on literally uh, as soon as the ink was dry on that down tick day. I I don't think we are seeing aggressive moves. I mean... four five I mean you and I and Jeff have talked about this all year where is the follow through on the bad days and there always seems to be more money ready to be put back into the market from different quarters every time we have a sell-off now I think the most we've had and this is not scientific it's just what I'm thinking what I'm looking at this year the most we've had is like a two-day aggressive sell up here, a two-day there as well. And then the market rebounds so aggressive because there is so much money waiting in the wings. And it just takes me back to the point I made yesterday. that, quite frankly, Jeff, uh, there are extraordinary valuations because the Fed keeps pumping and keeps pumping and keeps pumping. And there's some terrific articles, by the way, on CNBC.com talking about how the market may well be too complacent. You've got Bank of America's uh, Hans Mikkelsen uh, quoted. You've got Mohammed el Arian talking uh, just about how the market seems to think that the Fed is going to be very slow, very calm, but we're still going to get the growth. We get the growth, but we don't get the inflation. That for me is a bit of a head scratcher, Jeff.
0: Yeah, well, let's pick that up with uh, Carl Weinberg, Steve. And I agree with you that the bull trend seems to be intact as far as the markets are concerned at the moment. And quite frankly, what we've heard from the Fed is a trimming of the sales in terms of the timing of the interest rate moves. But the talk of tapering really doesn't take us very close to the end of this $120 billion that's being used every month to buy paper. Um, Carl Weinberg uh, comes to us from High Frequency Economics. Carl, obviously we saw the Fed Chair's uh, released remarks um, continue to reassure the market that there is no dramatic shift in monetary policy taking place here. But obviously, the uh, the news from the latest Fed meeting did, did give investors pause for thought. Just sum up for us what you ultimately think has changed.
3: Well, when we read, good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Karen. Uh, good to be here. Thank you. Um, when we read the Fed's statement, not very much has changed at all. And when we read the Fed's forecast, other than the dot plot for expectations of policy, Not very much has changed at all beyond the growth and um, inflation expectation for the current year. So as concerned as the Fed might be, the majority on the Fed still very much is looking forward to uh, a moderate growth and low inflation outlook. Um, So I think that what the Fed chair is trying to do right now is look a very delicate Line. if we recall back at the time of the last tapering, it was preceded by a, a paper at Jackson Hole by Michael Woodford, in which he argued that guidance was a potent tool of monetary policy uh, as long as the central even when the central bank had interest rates down around zero because if people expected the Fed not to move. They would accelerate their investment spending and consumption spending to take advantage of the promise of low interest rates. And I think Fed Chair Powell is very conscious of that. He's trying to keep the storyline focused on 2023-2024 before the first move out of the Fed. But at the same time, he has to acknowledge that the Fed is aware that there could be inflation risks. And if that does happen, the Fed will be uh, there to take care of whatever has to be taken care of. I think he's walking a very fine line, but the name of the game here will be to keep the guidance looking forward very, very far ahead.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, you all the way through have basically made the case that you agree with the transitory line. And even as Powell acknowledged that there have been uh, notable rises in price pressures, he still sticks to his argument that these will wash out as the supply bottleneck eases. Let me ask you, how useful do you think the 30-year Treasury yield is at this point as an indicator really of um, how transitory that inflation story will be, because at the moment, the 30 year is behaving just as the Fed would hope it would behave, given its analysis.
3: Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of divergence across markets and across market participants about what is really happening here right now are we really going to see an acceleration of inflation uh, on what basis you know are we looking for that on what data are we are we basing that assumption and the market is at least the bond market is not going for the assessment that inflation is lurking around every corner and when you look at the data you've got one or two months of accelerating prices and that's it that's really all you have you look at the real data, and we're going to get an update—an update on personal consumption spending uh, this week. Um, you know, your incomes are down, spending is down. Uh, the housing data are doing okay. The jobs data have sort of stalled out a little bit. Um, when we look across the board, all, all the indicators we're looking at suggest that after the burst of post-stimulus transfers to people's pockets, the economy is slowing down again. And I think maybe a month or two from now, when oil price basis effect is out of the CPI, when the spool up uh, in insufficiencies of supply have worked themselves out and prices have stopped accelerating again when these car prices stop going up and biasing the entire cpi upward the the case for a hawkish fed and for inflation worries is going to be much much harder to sell and that's what the bond market is telling us they're doing what the fed wants them to do looking through the noise
2: Carl, we're not even talking about, good morning, my friend, and I love these chats. Look, we're not even talking about a hawkish Fed. We're talking about a moderately neutral Fed. I mean, at the moment, we have an uber dovish Fed. No one should forget that. Look, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to take you into my personal inbox, okay? This is not my work inbox, my personal one. This is about my bedside tables. Dear Steve, we're hoping to make your delivery on the 25th of October. There's a few global transportation challenges at the moment. This may affect the proposed delivery week. Trust me, they're just a couple of wooden bedside tables. 20. 25th of October. That is serious transportation issues around the globe. Now, I've got another one from my builder who's, who's trying to do my driveway at some stage. He says, Hi Steve, uh, really sorry, but I'm gonna have to put back the start date. Can't get hold of cement, can't get hold of materials. So your new start date, a little bit later than expected as well. Carl, this is across the board. This isn't one or two months. Hauliers can't get hold of drivers. Hospitality are having to shut restaurants at lunchtime because they can't get staff. Karen was talking yesterday about some of the biggest US airlines who are having to trim flights because they can't get staff. How do you think that this stuff is gonna work its way through in one or two months? And by the way, you didn't mention the jolt survey. Uh, And quite frankly, the quits rate is saying that people are just not gonna go back to work unless they get the right salary.
3: Well, Steve, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, and there's a lot of anecdotal uh, pieces that you're putting in there, but it's hard to add that up to match the full picture or to predict that these things are going to persist. You know, for, for one point of view, the economy is going from zero to 60 right, in a matter of months, something that's never been done before. And when the economy accelerates that fast, people can't find employees. People can't, I'm sorry, companies can't find employees. Shippers can't find containers. Uh, that's to be expected when you go from zero to 60. What else would happen? All right? It takes a while for supply to spool up. And in the United States in particular, demand has been boosted by this fiscal stimulus that has overwhelmed uh, supply. On top of that, all right, let's talk about uh, the spool up um, uh, in supply. All right? the, um, the, the, the whole nature of these lockdowns has been that people have been unable to spend on services. So the losses have been concentrated in the services sectors that you're talking about, and spending has been pivoted into the goods categories that you're talking about. So taking X percent of spending that used to be on services and shifting all of that money into goods, all right, which, which is all that people have been able to spend money on, has overwhelmed the supply chain for goods. And that's a characteristic of the lockdowns that we hope are not going to be part of our future. So as the lockdowns unlock, will pivot out of goods into services and suddenly demand for containers and demand for movers and demand for furniture will be less than it was before right. and we'll be spending more money at the pub and so forth.
1: Uh, Carl, and the reality is deep could just buy other bedside tables that are available at this point. But I want to quiz you away from consumer behaviour and market behaviour and what we're seeing with the yield at this stage. Uh, one and a half percent where we're roughly trading at. If there's a genuine inflation issue coming, you'd think we would have spiked a little bit further from this level. You make some interesting points about the market how it perceives a taper versus what happens when the taper actually kicks off. Uh, just walk us through what we can expect this time around on market behavior.
3: Well, you know, I'm looking at the Fed's own median projections for inflation for 2022, 2023 and onward. And they're uh, 2.1, 2.4%, I'm sorry, 2.1 or 2.2% for PCE inflation and core, CPF, core PCE at 2.1% for both 2022 and 2023. So the bond market is, is agreeing with the Fed It's saying the same thing the Fed is saying, which is that there is no acceleration of inflation in their forecast for right now. And I think that we're going to see bond yields continue to uh, recap, regain the losses that they've had, and to continue to rally as inflation expectations go down and the economy underperforms these fears of uh, a raging, accelerating recovery that people like Larry Summers are talking about. As we let the data speak and as the recovery progress, I'm pretty sure that we're going to see slower growth and lower headline prints on all of these right now very scary indicators, and that's going to keep the market going. Just as a matter of history, if you look at the uh, bond market back at the time of the last tapering, when the Fed announced it was talking about tapering, bond yields leveled off, having been climbing up to that point, and then they declined over the entire 10 months of tapering in 2014. It's not inconsistent to see the bond market rally while the Fed is stepping back away from the market, as long as the economic fundamentals are supportive of lower yields.
0: Carl, always good to catch up. Thanks so much for giving us your time this morning. Carl Weinberg, Chief Economist of High Frequency Economics. Uh, And we'll get an interesting test of just how much momentum there is in consumer spending. With Prime Day, we're going to talk about Amazon's uh, latest uh, offering. We'll also talk about how some of the other big American retailers are trying to cash in on the noise around Prime Day and what will be the impact of some of these supply chain blockages. We'll have more on that story when we come back.
1: And uh, while we take the break, uh, you can also listen in on that inflation debate facing FOMC officials. Check out this forkbox podcast. Managers at Legal and General have criticised Clayton, Debillier, and Rice's takeover bid for UK supermarket chain Morrison's, arguing the private equity house would not add any genuine value. CDNR issued a 230 pence per share offer last week, giving the group an enterprise value of £8.7 billion. Morrison's shares surged on Monday after the chain rebuffed the offer. Listen.
2: This is this is. You know what? The last chat we had with um, Carl Weinberg was about inflation uh, and about goods. I think this next chat, which is completely different, it's about Amazon Prime, is actually the same conversation. Bear with me. Amazon's biggest shopping event, Prime Day, way uh, continues for a second day in a row with over two million deals offered to Prime subscribers on the platform. But experts warn supply chain issues. Here we go. Supply chain issues could impact the event. Meanwhile, U.S. retailers such as Walmart, Target, and Best Buy. Also put thousands of products on sale to compete with the tech giant. Right, okay, ladies and gentlemen, if you can do this at the same time, do it. If you can't, do it after this conversation. Lauren Thomas is one of our writers. She's put a a brilliant article on CNBC.com about Amazon Prime Day. It's not about the deals. And and I read through this and absolutely it chimed with everything that you, ladies and gentlemen, are seeing out there at the moment. I.E. limited supply chain means there's no point in them putting loads of goods on there because they can't ship them under a prime type scenario, i.e. within 24 hours, because they don't have the inventories. That's the other point, inventories are lean. So limited supply chains, lean inventories, and brands are basically turning around and saying, again, this is Lauren's excellent article, they're turning around and saying, there is no need to compete with big markdowns because quite frankly, we're selling loads of goods anyway at the price we have them online as well. So I think it's absolutely fascinating, uh, Jeff and Karen, that this article is just pointing out what we're talking about in the previous section with Carl, i.e. we don't need to mark down. We're selling everything anyway. And even if we did mark down, we can't get the goods to market.
1: It's a novelty to to go out and shop these days. But I wonder just what that novelty is uh, like when it comes to online, because let's face it, we've all been doing it during the crisis. There's not been a lot of options. I wonder just what the level of demand will be during this mega event for Amazon and all the rivals seeking to compete. The other point around delivery, I mean, what jumps out to me is having shopped some of those U.S. sales before as well. Uh, You know, Black Friday, Cyber Monday. It would take so many weeks for the product to arrive. I'd pretty much forgotten that I'd bought it. Uh, It would be about six weeks in some cases. But I think uh, when we talk about just how swift delivery is, we always think that Amazon has uh, cleaned up in this area. Others are trying to close the gap. But it did jump out to me that Bed Bath & Beyond, perhaps a product that you don't need to have the same day, has also rolled out same day delivery if you spend over a certain amount of money. So it's no longer just Amazon that can deliver on those sort of capabilities, which tells you how quickly the e-commerce supply chain delivery market has accelerated during the crisis. The other point too is around consumer demand and and tapping the right trends. I wonder whether Amazon has more data than some of the rest. It's gone for this window in June. Others have had to follow suit. But if you think where it was last year, it was actually much later. It was around October. So seeking to to capitalize on the early spending ahead of Christmas, Thanksgiving, the holiday period. So this is a very different window that it's going after now. Is it trying to capture spending that happens before more people head off for summer holidays where they might come back with even less money to spend. Uh, It's sort of hard to know what they're going after, but it does feel as though all of the retailers believe there's only a fixed pool of pent up savings and they all want to be in the same window at the same time in case there's nothing left on the other side, Jeff.
0: Yeah, Karen, I I think I can pick up on a couple of those points. I mean, I think because this is operating across 17 countries, obviously those countries are in different stages of reopening. So there will be some where people are able to take holidays and there will be many I think most probably where people are still a little hunkered down when it comes to travel and leisure. But some interesting stats here. Uh, JP Morgan analyst uh, Doug Anmuth um, crunched the numbers. The expectation based on the analysis from Doug Anmuth is that uh, we'll hit $5 billion in sales for this prime day. Uh, Ultimately, that would be quite a big step up on the 3.2 billion that we had last year. But of course, the, the messaging at the moment is very much around this phrase, revenge shopping. I don't know whether this is one that you're familiar with, but this idea that by going out and spending money, you are in some way getting your own back on the coronavirus pandemic. Boy, you've got to love the way that American retailers are able to market this stuff and message to consumers. And just in terms of what the participation in this is likely to be like in the United States, well, we have the benefit of Adlucent's uh, survey, uh, and according to their survey, they found that 75% of Americans that they surveyed said that they were expecting to spend money on Prime Day. So again, a good indication that there is a high level of interest in this event. I think my question would be, Ultimately, how successful will some of those other retailers be as they try to climb aboard this phenomena? And uh, it's a huge list of American stores that want to take part or participate in some sense by offering their own discounts and bargains. And of course, it's not only limited to the United States. I know Curry's, among others here in the UK, is also pitching very aggressively to take the business away from Amazon. So Again, you know, a very interesting trial of just how strong the Amazon business model is when you've got these other retailers who are also willing to have a stab at taking market share away from them and, of course, can do it by offering their own online channel as well.
2: Yeah, interesting. So many points there. One, revenge shopping. I thought that's what partners did in relationships that weren't quite so happy, but they still have a joint bank account. Uh, Two, uh, interesting. I know some people are selling mighty large amounts of goods on Amazon. They much prefer it to their previous channels in the department stores. Three, my story is going to move on to LVMH in a minute. And I've just found this thing which came out the tail end of last year. The LVMH kite selling for £7,050. Yeah, it's a kite. £7,050. You can get a small light aircraft for that, can't you? Oh, euros, I beg your pardon. Almost the same. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
1: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.